Put in your earbuds if you don't want to get any weird looks from your boss or your kids. Because in this episode, we're going to be talking about the birds, the bees, and the human soul. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. Hello and welcome back to the final episode in this series where we are looking at the various theories on where we get our souls from. As a quick recap up to this point, we started off by talking about the soul bank, which is the idea that God on day one of creation basically created all the souls that would ever exist. And when a child is conceived, he just plugs a soul into that new baby. Last time we talked about creation, which is the idea that God still creates souls today. And so when a new baby is conceived, God creates the soul in that moment and puts it into that new baby. Now today, as we finish off this discussion, I've been hinting at a a theory that might be kind of weird, a little bit out there, and one that maybe a lot of you haven't heard. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. It's one that is at least worth considering. Now, I want to kind of preface this with a bit of a note about this theory. Now, first of all, even though it might be new to many, it's not actually a new theory. And we've actually heard this ever since about 200 AD from an early church Christian named Tertullian. And if you are the sort of person who likes labels for things, this is actually called traducianism. And I'll have a, a spelling of that down in the show notes if you can't figure it out, because who could blame you? But another thing I want to say about this theory is that, as I've said, it is different from what a lot of people have heard. And there's kind of two camps of people that I want to kind of brace for this discussion, because I don't want the uniqueness of traditionism to stand in the way of how someone receives this as whether it is truth or whether it's not true. Some people might hear this and say, you know what, it's too weird, it's too different, I never hear anyone talk about this, so I'm, I'm just too uncomfortable, it's, I can't believe it's true. You know, so, so in other words, people who might be put off by it simply because it's not what they're accustomed to hearing. The other camp falls on the complete opposite end, and there are those who might hear this and get really excited and want to believe it's true, maybe not necessarily because they are convinced through seeing it revealed in God's word, but simply because it is new, it is different, it bucks the trend, it goes against tradition. And the reality that this is main, or I should say is not mainstream, is appealing to some people out there, people who want something new and fresh and exciting. And so I just want to really preface all this to say that this theory is different, it is going to be new to many, but whether it makes you uncomfortable or excited, try to set either of those aside and simply try to let God's word convince you one way or another whether it's true. Because at the end of the day, that really is all that matters. It doesn't matter if it makes us uncomfortable or excited or if we want to believe it. What matters is should we believe it based on what has been revealed in the Bible. So all that out of the way, let's just get right into it. What is traditionism about? Now, the big idea is that when a man and woman love each other very much, they make a baby. Or, in our culture, if they are mildly attracted to each other. 
But regardless, whenever a child is made, we know that scientifically in the year, as I'm recording this, in the year 2021, we know that when two parents conceive a child, both of their DNA is a part of that child, right? The, the mother and the father are responsible for that child's physical DNA. Now, what this theory would say is that not only is a new human being physically created in the act of conception, but spiritually speaking, a new soul is created from the mother and the father's spiritual DNA that come together when they create this human being. And so, new souls aren't created directly by God. They are instead created through the reproductive process that God has designed and established for the continuation of humanity. So what that means, obviously, if you're trying to piece together what you remember in middle school science class, is that the sperm and the egg, therefore, would have some part of their parents' soul attached to it or embedded in it, or in some way, the sperm carries the father's soul bit to the egg inside the mother, and through mixing those two souls together, a brand new human being is created, both physically and spiritually. Now, I warned you it was weird, but I'm not just making this up. So let's look at four pieces of support that we can find that might make this theory true. Now, the first support that we're going to look at is that the Bible seems to imply a one-time soul creation. Now, let's just look at some familiar verses that maybe we're getting tired of on episode 3 of this discussion. Uh, so, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, we see here, in the creation account, male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve, were created on day 6. And then Genesis 2, if we jump into there, that gives us a more zoomed-in view of creation. Uh, because if it matters to any of you listening, I view Genesis 2 as basically just a repeat of Genesis 1. It's not a new creation account. It's not further in the creation account. It looks backwards. So in Genesis 2, it now kind of zooms in and gives us more context, more information on the creation account. And so then in Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then if we were to go back or go up further to Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, this is where God puts Adam to sleep, takes his rib out, and forms Eve from Adam. And so what we're seeing here is that God formed man, what, what God's word calls, in his own image. Now, what that means can, of course, be up to some debate, but one thing that we do know is that we see no indication that God himself has directly made another human being in his own image since Adam. Now, that gets interesting because humans are very unique. We are, of course, physical, like all of other God's creatures, right? Fish, birds, you know, whatever, everything is, is a physical being. But humans are unique in that not only do we have a physical component that makes us who we are, but we also have a uniquely spiritual component to ourselves, which we know as the soul. So all this is basically just rehash. This, this isn't news to most people listening. But here's where this theory really starts coming together. Now, we know that God keeps the universe going. Right In Colossians 1.17, it talks about how Christ holds all things together. But 
We also know that at creation, God made his universe to continue naturally. In other words, apart from his direct intervention. We know that animals and plants were designed and created purposely by God to reproduce after their own kind. Even, you know, as as we learn about the water cycles, we know that even the planet Earth kind of sustains itself in a in a natural sense in that no one has to go and collect water from the ocean to pull it up into the clouds to make it go and, and have rainfall on the land. We know that God designed the, the entire world to kind of keep itself going to a certain extent. Again, that's not some kind of idea of deism where God wound up the clock and walked away, but we see God's perfect design in how the universe, and, and especially our world, functions to keep itself going by natural means while Jesus Christ basically holds it all together. And now we also know that not only do plants and animals reproduce after their own kind, but human beings are also a part of this self-sustaining cycle. By that I mean that, you know, despite what we talk about when it comes to reproduction, we know that childbirth itself is a beautiful thing, but it's not a miraculous thing. As we've grown in, in our knowledge and understanding, we have found how babies are created. We know that they are not just, you know, plugged into a womb by God, but that they are naturally a process of the human reproductive cycle. And so what we want to ask ourselves now is, we know that our bodies reproduce themselves. So is it possible that our souls, likewise, were designed by God to reproduce and to continue on in that exact same way? Now, Again, I don't want to run into the problem of just making random claims that sound cool or interesting. Let's actually see where we might see a hint of this in God's Word. And again, remembering that the Bible isn't a science textbook. God didn't give it to us to just answer all the questions we might have. So what we need to do in things like this where we're trying to understand the origins of the soul is we need to see how is God talking about things? How are things revealed? And what can we learn about the human soul and where it may come from and how God may view it. So in Genesis 5.3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, at this part of our conversation, what may be just kind of a boring Bible verse starts to become very interesting to us because this language here of Adam creating a child in his own likeness and image directly mirrors what we see in the creation account when God himself made Adam in his own image, in God's own image. And where that gets kind of cool is that, you know, we, we remember that God isn't this physical being like us. God is spirit. And so when we are made in God's image, one thing we can pull from that is that when we are in his likeness, in his image, part of that is probably talking about our own soul, our own spirit, that we are made like God in a certain way. And so likewise, Adam's son is made in his own likeness. He is made after Adam. And so if this theory is true, that when we reproduce, we are making sons and daughters after our own image, then what that means is that Adam is showing us the first instances of body and souls being reproduced after their creators. So Adam got Eve pregnant and Eve gave birth to Seth. And Seth was like Adam, probably in physical appearance, because we know that that is how genetics work. 
But this language is calling back that when Adam was made body and soul and was you know, made in God's image in that way, we can start to get this idea, this picture that maybe Seth wasn't just made after Adam's physical likeness, but Adam reproduced. He gave his soul traits to Seth. He imparted his spiritual DNA to his son in the same way he gave his physical DNA. So now that is kind of a big support, right? That that We're just at number one right now. And I want to say that that is probably the hardest one to wrap our heads around because that is what really holds this whole thing together is the idea just that God from creation established everything to reproduce after its own kind. Now, trees don't have spirit to them, so they only need to reproduce physically. Squirrels and whales only have a physical component to them, so they only reproduce their own kind by in, in terms of physicalness. But as human beings, we are unique in that we have body and soul. So when we are reproducing, and we're reproducing after our own kind, we aren't just reproducing physically, but we are also reproducing. We are donating a piece of ourselves, spiritually speaking, to the new human beings that are our offspring. So understanding all that, if you're even if you don't believe it yet, if that makes a degree of sense, we're going to be able to go through the next three supports a bit easier because these are just kind of the the legs that might hold up the main body of this theory. Now, support number 2 is that traditionism explains how it is that we are born with sin's curse upon us. You know, we talked about before that the soul bank and the this creation of the soul create issues in when is a soul touched by sin? And those often lead to a bit of a heretical answer in that we say souls are pure and innocent, but it's when they touch these wretched bodies that they become corrupted. And, you know, I'm not going to rehash that whole thing there, but go listen to either episode one or two where I get into why this belief system called Gnosticism is actually a really big problem when it comes to how we understand where the soul becomes guilty of sin, of Adam's sin especially. And so, once again, understanding this, let's go back to Psalm 51.5, as we've read before, and read it through new lenses. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So if traditionism is true, right, if it, if it holds up, then what this means is that Ad, or, excuse me, David is talking about sinful souls reproducing, because David is talking about how he was born in sin. He was brought forth in sin. He was was guilty of sin, basically, since his very own conception. It wasn't when he was five years old and talked back to his mom. It wasn't when he was ten and hit one of his brothers. It was when he was conceived. That is when guilt of sin was applied to him, and he was seen as a sinner. And so what this then does is it helps to explain where it is that our own sin comes from. Where does our sin nature come from? I shared, I think, in the first episode of this series that there's two debates on our sin. Do we sin because we are naturally born sinners, or are we considered sinners because we sin? In other words, just like you're not a thief until you steal something, just not, just like you're not an alcoholic if you've never had alcohol before, are you considered a sinner before God before you've actually sinned? Well, through this understanding, we would see that if we are born sinners, if, if our sin guilt is imputed to us, if it's accredited to us by God because of what Adam did, 
then this makes a lot more sense on why it is that we are born with a sin nature. It's because we are born with our parents' genetics, both physically and spiritually speaking. If they had Adam's guilt on them, and if their parents had Adam's guilt, going on and on all the way back to Adam himself, then what we're seeing is that Adam didn't just, in a way, doom the human race because he made a bad choice, but because the guilt of sin was imprinted into his very own DNA that he then passed on and on. So just like Adam passed on the basic mechanics of human beings being born with two legs and ten fingers, he also passed on the genetic requirement for us to have a sin nature because of what we inherited from our ancestors. And now moving on to support number three, and, and we're going to just talk a little bit more about our ancestors with this one, is because when we first think of that, that, oh, that's not fair that I get busted for what Adam did, right? That's like someone in Russia robbing a store and us going to jail for it. But what we see in the Bible is that when God talks, he, he talks about our ancestors representing us. So looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and this is, of course, a callback to an account in Genesis, it says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And now what the story is talking about is when uh, Abraham was basically traveling, he met a guy named Melchizedek and paid a tithe to him. And so this passage in Hebrews is kind of logically breaking down how, in a way, it was like Levi had also paid tithes through Abraham. Now, what we need to understand is that we need to consider Abraham's family tree, because it wasn't that when it talks about how Levi was in Abraham's loins, it's not like Levi was going, you know, soon to be born, that the next time Abraham impregnated his wife or his wife's servant, that Levi would be born. No, Abraham was Levi's great-grandfather. So there were generations between them, and yet, spiritually speaking, Levi was given credit, in a way, for what Abraham had done, spiritually speaking. And so, again, we need to remember that the Bible is not a textbook. And so when it's talking about things like this, we need to realize it's not making a claim about either spiritual or physical genetics necessarily. But what we can see is that if this idea is true of our souls being reproduced after our, from our parents, is that God may have inspired the writer of Hebrews to hint at our spiritual DNA tracing back to things our ancestors done. And as I pointed out, all the way back to Adam and his guilt and what he did and how even though we weren't there, what he did was accredited, attributed to us because he is our great, great, great on and on grandfather, just like Abraham was Levi's grandfather. And yet what Abraham did was in a sense accredited to him. And now finally, support number four and this one I think a lot of people will just find interesting in a general sense. And that is that traditionism explains why of all the ways Christ could have come to earth, God chose very specifically to have him be born of a virgin. Now, have you ever actually wondered why Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? Why, why couldn't he be born of human parents? Why did he have to be born at all? Why couldn't he just come down from heaven and take on a human form in a way like we see throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord? Why didn't Christ come through any other means? 
Because what we know about God is we know he doesn't just throw darts, see what sticks, and that's the plan he's going with, right? God doesn't leave anything to chance. He doesn't do anything randomly, and he doesn't do anything without a purpose. We know that God didn't pick from thousands of good options, but chose the only one option that was perfect and specific for what God wanted to accomplish. And we know that God's purpose in sending Christ wasn't to teach us to be good people, but to pay the sin debt that we owed to God, to take God's wrath in our place. And so if that is why Christ came, in order to fulfill his Father's purpose in redemption, then we have to ask ourselves, how did the virgin birth contribute to that? How was that necessary and even mandatory for Jesus Christ to be able to take our sin on himself? So let's start this off before we go further and jump into the book of Romans. And in Romans 5, verse 18, it says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So now we know... If, you know, if you've listened to any of my podcasts up to this point or read any of my articles, you're probably at least on board with the idea that we are individually responsible for our individual sin. We can't blame someone else. We can't treat sin as this lesser thing. We know that sin is awful and we deserve death because of it. We deserve to be God's enemies because of the choices that we make to live as his enemies. Before Jesus Christ came and even today... When we choose to be prideful or greedy or angry or lazy, we know that we deserve God's wrath, but that there is none left for us because God poured it all out on Jesus Christ at the cross. But we also know that we carry the guilt of Adam's sin in us, just like this Romans 5.18 passage is talking about, where because of Adam's disobedience, we were made sinners. We weren't made sinners because of our individual disobedience. Instead, our individual Sin, our love of sin, comes from what Adam did so long ago. And so just like the relationship between Levi and Abraham, Adam similarly represented us. But notice that it wasn't Adam and Eve that represented us. It's not pinned on Eve that we inherit this guilt. It's from Adam. We get guilt because of what Adam did. And now really let that sink in because that seems like a minor issue. But the, the reality that Adam, that Our male ancestor is the one who is seen as responsible for passing down sin natures to humanity is key for what we're going to talk about next. And so when it comes to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, we know, as I said, that we needed a savior to pay for our personal sin, right? We had racked up a debt that we couldn't pay for. And so at the cross about 2000 years ago, Jesus Christ took our punishment. But we also know that Christ didn't just pay for our individual sins, but because Adam fell, he failed, he represented humanity in his sin, so Jesus Christ paid the penalty for Adam's sin guilt that has been passed down to his ancestors as well. And what's fascinating about this is that when it comes to individual sin, we know that Christ was perfect on earth. He never broke the law. He never sinned. He had no guilt before God to pay for. And so that is the only reason why Christ could pay for our sin. Because if Christ had sinned once, then he would have the wrath of God on himself. And so he would have to pay for his own debt. But because Jesus Christ was perfect, he had no wrath of God to pay for. So he could take our debt upon himself. But Jesus Christ also didn't have to pay 
his portion of Adam's guilt as well. So just as Christ paid our individual sins because he had none, he could also pay the weight of our original sin, of Adam's guilt in our place, because Jesus Christ did not have Adam's guilt upon him. But why? We know that Jesus Christ was fully a human being. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't just God walking around in a skin suit. He was fully human and fully God. So how could Jesus Christ be born as a human, live as a human, and die as a human, yet not have the same penalty that all humans need to pay? And this is where I think it is key on why he had to be born of a virgin. Because if we see that God is working throughout all of history through our male ancestors representing us, right? All the way back to Adam, we see that God has had this this working of of the the man, the husband representing the family, right? We see in Ephesians 5:23 that the husband is the head of his family. If that is how God operates, regardless of culture, regardless of social desires or opinions, if that is how God treats humanity, that the man is a representative of his family, then that means that Adam is the, the full head, the full representative of all of us. Then that would mean that the guilt of Adam's sin is passed through the male half of DNA. So if you are sitting there and you are a father and, and you, you know, your kids are screaming, they're disobedient, whatever, that's on you. You passed on Adam's sin nature to them. If you are someone who struggles with sin, and I'm going to assume at least most of you struggle with sin, you can thank dad for it because he passed that on to you as the head of your family between your mother and your father. He is the one who is responsible for passing on the guilt of Adam's sin through the children. And so Jesus Christ, being born as a human being, had no male half to his DNA. He was born of Mary and the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, Jesus Christ inherited humanity, but he didn't inherit a sin nature. He had a human nature, but not a sin one. And so this whole idea that if, if sin is passed down in that way, through souls and new souls being created, this would help us to understand, in a big sense, what on earth the whole point of the virgin birth actually was, and why it's not something that we can lessen or try to, you know, change history for to make it more palatable, because it was that critical for Jesus Christ's perfection to be born of a virgin, so that he could not inherit Adam's sin on himself. And as a side note, and I want to say this, this has nothing to do with the soul, but Boy, what a time for me to bring this up. A lot of Christians out there, when they are tempted, they think, oh, you know, Satan is whispering lies to me. He's tempting me. He's he's telling me to do these things. He's telling me to doubt and things like that. You know, Christians innocently, and I don't think through any ill will, will blame Satan for the temptations that they face because they, they feel that Satan is directly tempting them like he did with Jesus Christ, like he did with Adam and Eve, where Satan was directly whispering temptations towards sin to them. But think about that. We only see that with Adam, Eve, and Jesus Christ. And with Adam and Eve, we only see it happen one time, and that's before the fall. Now, what do Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ have in common? They had no sin nature to tempt them. They had nothing internal. They had nothing inside themselves that was natural and core to who they were to tempt them to disobey, to tempt them to fill their pride or to, you know, to do whatever it is that Satan was tempting them towards. 
they didn't have anything inside them, so they needed an influence to do it. And so I would argue that Satan actually doesn't whisper lies or temptations or, or tell us to doubt today because he doesn't need to. We have our sin nature and we are fully capable on our own to be 100% tempted towards the most disgusting and horrible sins. We don't need anyone's help to doubt ourselves, to question God, to doubt our faith. Now, of course, agree or not, that is the conclusion that I can come to based on this understanding of where the soul comes from and where Adam's guilt comes from and why Satan whispered to only three people throughout biblical history. And and this would help explain why that was the case. But getting back on task, that is the it for when it comes to kind of the big things that can support this idea of souls being created at conception by taking part of the mother and the father's DNA, spiritually speaking, and creating a new soul right alongside the new body. So to sum up what we've talked about so far, we see that God set up creation to reproduce. We see that physically, and this would include spiritually speaking, that souls were set up in such a way that they would reproduce right alongside physical bodies. We see why this would explain how we are born with the curse of sin upon us and just how far-reaching sin is, that it's not just this bad mistake we make, but it is something that is intrinsic and core and embedded into our very DNA. It helps us to understand how our ancestors could have represented us and helps us to see how God treats the, the leaders of families and how that affects their, their descendants. And we may also have better understood why Christ had to be born of a virgin. Now, all that might sound really good, but I think it's important for us not to just look at what sounds great about something, but also where these weaknesses might come from. And I'm going to not spend tons and tons of time on these, but they are important to discuss. Now, weakness number one is Eve's soul and where it came from. Because we know that Eve didn't have another half of a human to form her DNA. And her forming wasn't done through any kind of reproductive means, right? Because Eve was formed out of Adam's rib. And so this leaves us with potentially a ton more questions because what does this mean about Eve's soul? Was it just Adam's soul? Did, did God create a new soul through that rib? Does that mean that our souls are found in all aspects of our DNA to where even our very bones have bits of our soul in them that can somehow be extracted or passed on? And that leads us into weakness number two, and that is the question of if our souls can be divided into almost infinite pieces. And why this might matter more than maybe we initially realize is that, historically speaking, the church has seen the human soul as being simple. And when I say simple, I don't mean easy or straightforward or basic, because if this series has taught us anything, it's that the soul is crazy complicated. But what simple means in this case is that it's not able to be divided up. It is a single unit that can't be cut in half. So if you think of, just look at anything around you. Everything around you can be cut in half. And those pieces can each be cut in half, and on and on and on. They can be divided up because they are complex things. We know through science that that is because even though you know a, a mirror or a door or a phone might seem to be just like one solid piece, we know that everything breaks down at a microscopic level to being essentially made out of thousands and thousands of Lego pieces. And so 
everything in our world, even the most basic thing, is complex. It's not simple. The human soul, on the other hand, has always been seen and understood as something that you can't divide. You can't split. A soul is entire and complete, and it can't be divided up in between things. And so, while we're not going to go into why the church has believed that, if that is true, then that creates a huge issue for traditionism, because traditionism is all about passing some aspect of our soul DNA onto our offspring. Now, weakness number three is what this might mean for the whole nature versus nurture debate. Because, if you aren't familiar with that, it is the question of where do kids learn to do what they do? Not just in the sense of reading the ABCs and counting, but where do kids learn anger? Where do they learn to be helpful? Where does their preferences come from? You know, why chocolate and not vanilla? Why this kind of music and not that kind of music? And the debate boils down to either they are born that way, they are born with their preferences, or they learn it. It's a learned thing. And that you could take that same human child, and if they had grown up in a totally different environment, they would be a totally different person. And if traditionism is true, then that can start leading into this idea that we are just kind of born with whatever we get. Whatever sin behaviors we pursue, whatever preferences we have, everything is just what we inherit from our, our ancestors. And that can cause a lot of problems, especially in things like the sexuality debate or whether we should be guilty of our sin because if we just inherited our desire for you know addictive substances or laziness from our ancestors... Is that really our fault? And then that leads us into weakness number four, which is kind of an expanded version of that. And that is that, is it unfair that we inherit Adam's sin? Right? This goes all the way back to what we talked about earlier in the episode. You know, because traditionism demands that we believe that we are guilty of not just our sin, but also the sin of humanity, right? What Adam did in the Garden of Eden, we are considered guilty of. And is that fair? Because this is actually part of a much, much bigger debate called federal headship. And I've already really hinted at that previously, but the summary of what that means is that Adam's sin is imputed or credited to us. In other words, because Adam did it, he kind of passes on that credit to us, like we talked about with Levi paying tithes because his ancestor Abraham paid tithes. And then from there, that is why the Bible also talks about how Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. In other words, because Christ did the thing, he has passed it on to those who would be called the sons of God. Now that is the four federal headship debate. But we have to ask, did Adam really represent us? Is that an accurate representation of how the Bible talks about sin being passed down? Or is it more the tendency towards sin, the desire to sin, but not the guilt of one man's sin being passed on hundreds of generations down the line? Because what that would then mean is that we were essentially doomed thousands of years ago by some guy who who represented us when we never asked him to represent us. We didn't get our fair chance to obey. We just kind of got born and they said, oh, hey, here's all this history and all this sin that's now being ascribed to you because of, of what one guy did forever ago. Good luck to you. You know, is that really fair? Is God good by doing that, by attributing that to us? And now I'll take just another brief detour here because I know that whenever the discussion of us being born sinners comes up. There is a very painful question that might come into the minds of some people, and that is, 
Well, what happens to babies who die with the guilt of Adam's sin on them, even if they may not have sinned themselves independently or individually? What happens to them when they die? Do they still die with the guilt of Adam's sin upon themselves? And for that, I've actually written an article. I haven't done a podcast episode yet, but if that's something that's on your mind, I have a link in the show notes called Do Babies Go to Heaven? And just give that article a read if you're kind of wondering maybe what what Adam's sin might mean for either the unborn or those who die very young and don't have an opportunity to accept or reject God because they are mature and intelligent enough to handle it. Now, all that being said... That is kind of the end of traditionism, and that is the end of this discussion on the origins of the soul. So I just want to give some final thoughts before I wrap this episode up. First, I just want to say that I tried to take a fairly objective look at the three theories. I was probably not super fair to the soul bank theory. Um, you know, creationism, I tried to be fair. It's, it's not something I obviously think is true. I, I don't think it is as close to an answer as traditionism is. But I hope that you've heard not someone trying to prove a point about one viewpoint, but someone who is just trying to, to find a, the most biblical answer I can for where our souls come from. But I also want to end this by pointing out that you know, while I have been you know, speaking kind of authoritatively on all of this, I will admit and accept that we may never have a perfect answer for the soul. Because as I've been talking about in this episode, the Bible is not a science textbook. It's not even an index or an encyclopedia. It's not something that gives us every answer for every question that we have. The Bible does give us everything we need, especially for life and godliness. But it's not, it doesn't give us everything we want answers to. What it can do, and what I hope that we have tried to do over these past few weeks, is just look at what we see in the Bible and, and kind of look at the context of the entire thing and see, okay, understanding how the soul is discussed, how our sin is discussed, can we pull together a semblance of an understanding of what the soul is and where it comes from? And I will say that, you know, between creation of the soul or the soul being reproduced, spiritually speaking, alongside a, a body being reproduced. You know, I will say that creationism and traditionism have a lot of strengths and they have a lot of weaknesses. There are holes that can be poked in both and there are big supports that can be found for both. But whatever I believe and whatever you believe, let it be not based on what sounds good or what one guy may say is more or less convincing. Let what you believe about the human soul be under the authority of nothing else except for God's word. Let the Bible clearly teach you as much as it's meant to about what the soul is and where it comes from. And so as you go from this episode, and as maybe you're you know, continuing to wrestle and struggle through, where does the soul come from? What do I believe? And why do I believe this about the soul? Keep the Bible as your highest authority, but remember that this is not a mandatory issue that we have to come to a conclusion or understanding on, and it is 100% not something we should divide over. Yes, what you believe about the human soul should affect other things you believe about the Bible, about humanity, and about God, right? Because it's, it's all tied together. But it is not something that is going to cause us to divide. We want to be consistent. We want what we say about the soul to match what we believe about sin and salvation and the gospel, 
but we don't want it to be something where we say, if you believe this about the soul, you are outside of the Bible. You are apart from what is right and true. We don't want to do that over secondary issues because this is not a salvation issue. Whatever you believe about the soul doesn't affect the fact that we have a perfect Savior that we need in order to save us. So as you're as you're you know leaving this episode, remember that you know creation is comfortable and it's popular. Traditionism is strange but exciting. But just make sure you're a student of God's word. Don't let your emotional or traditional reactions affect how you seek truth in this. But above all, always, always remember that every human being has a soul that is sin-drenched and guilty before God. Every single one of those souls needs a perfect and beautiful Savior in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for that sin. So let's walk away in love and in awe with Jesus Christ because of what he did in saving our souls that did not deserve to be saved. But let's never forget that there are plenty more out there who still need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can support me every month or make a one-time donation by following the link down in the show notes. I hope this episode helps you keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ. Hey, I'll just a quick side note I wanted to add at the very end of this episode. When I finished recording, my wife was eavesdropping on me, and she pointed out to me that the soul shouldn't be able to be divided unless you are Lord Voldemort from Harry Potter. So if you're a fan of that series, you can do with that what you will. Have a great day.